you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, as we pick up our study here in the gospel according to John. And as we enter John chapter 11, uh, John is beginning a transition from Jesus' public ministry to his more private moments with the disciples before he is then publicly tried and crucified. We've mentioned that chapters 11 and 12 form sort of a bridge to the final section of this book. And so consider with me how this chapter uh, that tells of the raising of Lazarus sort of unites these two sections of John's gospel. Uh, Think about this. The first sign that Jesus performed in John chapter 2 was performed at a wedding in Cana. And the seventh sign recorded here in chapter 11 was performed at a funeral in Bethany. His signs then are bookended by a wedding and a funeral. And I think in some ways, because of that, we're invited to consider what it looks like when Jesus meets us in our moments of highest joy, but also our moments of deepest sorrow. How does the presence of Jesus transform those different circumstances? And specifically here in John chapter 11, at this funeral, we should ask how the presence of Jesus as Messiah and Lord transforms our hardest and most difficult days. How does the presence of Jesus transform our hardest and most difficult days? Part of the answer to that question is found in the fact that the resurrection of Lazarus here in chapter 11 is also bookended by the resurrection of Jesus in chapter 20. John wants us to see that no matter how dark things may get, no matter how difficult life becomes, no matter how confused we might be, there is always the hope of resurrection. Resurrection. And in this sign of the raising of Lazarus, we're told this, in the face of death, hold on to Jesus, the resurrection and the life. We'll take that as our big idea from John chapter 11, in the face of death. Hold on to Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Of course, in this passage, we're talking about real physical death. In in the face of our death or the death of those that we love, our only hope is to hold on to Jesus as the resurrection and the life, and he is a certain hope for us. But I think there are also little deaths that we face every day. The death of our hopes for a particular day or for a week or even the death of our hopes for our lives. The death of our dreams for ourselves or for those that we love. The death of a job or a home, whatever that looks like to us. The death of our health. The death of our sense of security or or safety. Paul says in Romans 8, 36, that for Christ's sake, we are killed all the day long. Our lives, in many ways, are marked by death. And our world is marked by death, isn't it? By wars and violence, by divorce and separation, by economic struggles, by racial tensions. But could it be that for those of us who are in Christ, our lives and even this world could be marked just, not just by death, but also by resurrection. Small resurrections each day where God brings something beautiful from the dust of all of our 
broken dreams and new life to the things that we've buried in the ground for days and for years? Could there, could there even be a final resurrection? Could there be a resurrection of our bodies? Could there be a resurrection of the bodies and the lives of those that we love? Could our entire world be resurrected? Our entire world be made new? The answer in Christ is yes. Everything can be raised back to life. And therefore, we're encouraged in the face of death, in all of its forms, to hold on to Jesus. Why? Because he is the resurrection and the life. Let's walk through this beautiful account of the raising of Lazarus. And I'm going to try to draw out some principles, principles that, I, that will maybe help us tighten our grip on Jesus as we try to hold on to him in the face of death. Let's begin, I want to read it in parts and then talk about it. So let's just begin with the first four verses. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's word says. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There's a slow unfolding of information about this family in Bethany that occurs in verses one through three. At first, all we know is that there's a guy named Lazarus who is in the town of Bethany, and he is ill. And, and that town, Bethany, is, is separated from other towns called Bethany by saying that it's the home of these two sisters, Mary and Martha. Mary is said to be known for having anointed Jesus' feet with oil and then wipe, wiping his feet with her hair, though that event is actually still future at this point. John's going to describe it in the next chapter, mentioning that that this is the act that Mary would be forever known for, uh, which he proves by mentioning it here before it even happens in the narrative. Um, in, in this description of Mary, we also find out that Lazarus was Mary's brother. And so what we, fi- we slowly find out is there's a family unit. There's a brother and two sisters. Uh, we meet Mar- Martha and Mary in Luke 10 as well, and we might assume from that story and maybe some details here that Martha is the elder sister, though we, not, we don't know for sure. Uh, and we don't know very much about Lazarus. Uh, he never speaks, uh, and he's not found in any of the other gospel accounts. But what is clear is that Mary and Martha and Lazarus all have a deep relationship with Jesus. They must have spent time together. They, they know Jesus, and they are known by Jesus, and he loves them, and they love him. Jesus had friends that he loved deeply, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus were some of them. And that's why they send for him, of course, isn't it? Because they know who he is, they know what he can do, and they know that he loves them. And so, of course, he's going to come and help them. If you remember, we left Jesus back in or around Galilee where John the Baptist had started his ministry, so we can assume that he is, is still in that place 
when he finds out about his friend being sick and his other friends being distressed about it. But his initial response is not to rush there, but rather to wait. And we're told that he waits because he has some sort of a special, special knowledge and, and insight. Uh, he said that he knew this sickness would not lead to death, but rather would lead to the glory of God. In that, I think we're taken back to the beginning of John chapter 9, where Jesus tells the disciples that the blindness of the man before them was not because of his sin or anyone else's sin, but why? So that God's works might be displayed in him. That man's blindness was meant for the glory of God, and Lazarus's illness is meant for the glory of God. I think we can see then this call, a call to look for the glory of God in every circumstance. Let's just take that as a principle to help us hold on to Jesus. Look for the glory of God in every circumstance. Look for the glory of God in every circumstance. As we watch and and listen to Jesus, I think we could begin to wonder if maybe there's a way, maybe there's a way to look at the world such that we realize that everything is actually leading to the glory of God. That the whole world is is pressing towards God's glory. We discover that, that there's sort of this pair of glasses that we can put on by faith that would cause us to see all that is happening in the world as as a driving towards the revealing of the greatness and the goodness and the glory of God, that everything that is happening is for God's glory. Sometimes the path to God's glory is clear, but sometimes we have no idea how how God could use certain circumstances for his glory, but we can always trust that God is causing all things to work together for good to those who love him, that there will be a resolve to our stories just as there was to Joseph's, as Trevor showed us last week, where we find that, that even what others meant for evil was used for good, that the world will one day be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and that everything is pressing towards that, that God knows the end from the beginning, and his wisdom is always greater than ours. And here's the thing, if we start to look for God's glory in every circumstance, I think by God's grace, we may also end up seeking God's glory in all circumstances. We're not just trying to find it, but we're actually pursuing it. We find that our lives and our desires are transformed from being centered on our glory or our comfort or our agenda to instead being caught up with the glory of God. We're invited here to follow Jesus and to look for the glory of God in every circumstance. And not just to look for it, but to seek it. To let our lives be pressed into finding how we can honor and glorify God no matter what. Let's read some more. Uh, We read further and Jesus starts to interact with his disciples before they head to Bethany. So look at verses uh, 5 to 16 of John 11. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles 
because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. In verse 5, we're taken deeper into this relationship that Jesus had with this family in Bethany when we're told that Jesus not only loved Lazarus, but that he loved Mary, Mary and he loved Martha. I think it's hard to, for me to think of any other real, such clear statements about Jesus' love for specific people than what we find here in John 11. It's so explicit. But then John says that in some strange way, because of his love for them, he waited two more days before going to to them. Did you notice that in verses five and six? They communicate that his delay in going to them was motivated by his love for them. Look at it again. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so therefore when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And we are right to ask, but, but wouldn't his love cause him to drop everything and get to them as quickly as possible? That's the Hollywood scene that we all know, isn't it? Where the person makes great sacrifices to be by the side of the person that they love who is sick or is dying. And, and that's not just Hollywood, is it? It's what rises up in each of us. That when someone that we know and love is sick or near death, we want to get to them as quickly as possible. But here, Jesus' love causes him to wait. And we say in our hearts, if that if he loves this family, then he has kind of a funny way of showing it, doesn't he? When he finally decides to go to Bethany, the disciples aren't so sure that it's, that it's the right move. They ask if Jesus has forgotten about the last time that they were near Jerusalem, that when they were there, the Jews had tried to stone him. You remember that from chapter 10. And Bethany wasn't far from Jerusalem. We're told it's just about two miles Um, east uh, near the Mount of Olives. So the disciples are rightly concerned that going back into this region could lead to more conflict. In fact, they were correct that it was going to lead to to more conflict. And they want to know, is is it worth the risk? Should we really go see Lazarus and Mary and Martha? Jesus responds to their concerns with a parable similar to one that he says, again, back at the beginning of of John 9, uh, and this time he starts talking about that the time to work is while it is light out. It's fall, officially, isn't it? Which means that our days are getting shorter. And I have many memories in the fall of trying to take care of my leaves uh, and not having enough daylight hours of being, picking up bags of leaves in the the middle of, of the dark. Uh, and it's probably going to happen again uh, this year, I bet. Uh, it's, it's not easy to work in those twilight hours, though, is it? Because when's the time to work? Well, you work before darkness arrives. That's, that's when you work. And while Jesus knows that, that darkness is coming, and he also knows that even his going to Bethany is, is walking closer to the darkness, that threat of difficulty and death are not reasons for him to stop working. 
He is going to work until his hour arrives, and he will not stop working one moment before its arrival. He is going to keep working until the darkness of death overtakes him, and he invites his disciples to do the same. Like Jesus, we are invincible until the Lord decides to take us to himself. And while we should be, we should be wise, fear is not what drives us to to work or to not work for God. Rather, we work for the entirety of our lives as long as we still have the light of life and we trust that God will determine when night comes for each of us. Let's be careful not to quit too soon in God's work or quit for the wrong reasons. No, we work as long as we have the light of life. So Jesus has work to do in Bethany and in verse 11, he hints at what he's going to do. He tells the disciples that Lazarus is asleep. Sleep is a common euphemism for death in the Christian tradition. It was in the passage that that Jordan read from 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, It doesn't refer to this doctrine of of soul sleep, as some have called it, but simply to the fact that death for the Christian is not final. it's, It's like going to sleep, knowing that resurrection is coming, and we're going to wake up, as it were, to new life. But as has been the theme in John, the disciples misunderstand Jesus' heavenly wisdom and they hear it with, with worldly ears. They imagine that Lazarus is resting, therefore they wonder why Jesus would want to go and wake him up. If he's sick, sleep is the best thing for him, of course. So Jesus speaks plainly in verse 14, Lazarus is dead, he says. But he goes even further, assuming the line of thinking that they would have followed just like everyone else is going to, namely that Jesus could have healed him if he had been there. So before they can ask why Jesus had not decided to go to Bethany sooner, Jesus says that he is glad he wasn't there to heal him. Did you catch that? Jesus is glad he wasn't there to heal his friend that he loves, Lazarus. Why? I mean, what could be more important than healing his friend and keeping him from death? He tells us what's more important in verse 15. He says that he's glad he wasn't there so that the disciples would believe. The growth of the disciples' faith is more important than Lazarus' life continuing. Notice then this second encouragement. It's a longer one. (laughs) Remember, remember that the path to God's greater glory and our growing faith sometimes leads into deeper suffering. Remember that the path to God's greater glory and to our growing faith sometimes leads first into deeper suffering. The path to God's greater glory and our growing faith sometimes leads into deeper suffering. Jesus and John are united in their purposes, aren't they? They want us to believe in Jesus and find life in him. And while the disciples and even Mary and Martha and Lazarus believed in Jesus, we realize that there's a deeper faith that Jesus wants to lead them into. There's a deeper glory that he needs to reveal to them. And the only way that he can grow the kind of faith that he wants to, and the only way that he can reveal the kind of glory that he wants to, is for Lazarus to die. That has to happen. He has to lead them into deeper suffering so that he can bring about greater glory for himself and growth in their faith. Our problem is that we are often more concerned about our comfort than our Christ-likeness or the glory of Jesus. 
We don't want to face difficulty and pain. And for obvious reasons, we don't want to face difficulty and pain. But if we desire God's glory and growth in our faith, then we have to reckon with the fact that sometimes those things can only come as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Why do we understand this in every other area of our lives but struggle when it comes to our faith? When we exercise, we push our bodies to the limit. Why? Because no pain, no gain, right? At school, we stay up late. We make sacrifices to get good grades. At work, we spend long hours working overtime so that we can get ahead. In parenting, we forego our desires so that we can raise our kids in a way that leads to their flourishing. But we then assume that our faith is going to grow apart from pain, that we don't have to work hard to see our spiritual lives mature, that depth will come without difficulty, which means that when difficulty comes, we often wonder first if God is punishing us instead of asking how God might be growing us. This account tells us we have to remember that that the path to God's greater glory and the path to our growing faith sometimes first leads into deeper suffering. I don't think Thomas totally understood what Jesus was saying, but I think his readiness to walk into death reveals that his faith is growing in some way. He's willing to lay down his life for Christ. He's willing to suffer for Jesus' sake. And if our desire is God's glory and our growth in faith, then we too must be willing to take up our cross and to follow Jesus wherever he leads because Jesus himself is walking into deeper suffering. He's going to bring life, but his arrival in Bethany is going to lead to his death, or as he calls it, his glorification. In verse 17, Jesus and the disciples arrive in Bethany. So pick up the story there. Let's read 17 through 37. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying, In private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had had come with her also weeping, 
he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? As the story continues to unfold, we, we catch more and more glimpses of the love that Jesus had for this family and their deep love for him. But as you read it, and you can hear it in my voice, we realize this is, this is a scene of deep grief, isn't it? Lazarus has been dead for four days. Mourners from nearby Jerusalem have arrived to comfort Martha and Mary, probably indicating some sort of prominence of this family. And yet how strange it would have been for the enemies of Jesus to arrive before Jesus. We can imagine that there's probably some anger on the part of Martha and, and Mary at Jesus' delay. In verse 20, Martha rises to go and to meet Jesus when word arrives that he's there, but Mary stays in the house. I don't know for sure why. Maybe she just wasn't ready to see Jesus yet. But they both will eventually speak to Jesus. And did you notice they both say the exact same thing to him? Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It's a question that comes from deep hurt. And I think it's at the core of the question that every heart asks in the midst of tragedy. I think it's at the heart of questions that agnostics and atheists ask when tragedy hits. Because we want to know, where were you, God? If you love us, and if you have power to do all things, then where were you? That's a cry that goes up around the world every minute of every day. Where are you, God? And where were you? Martha, we get a hint at her personality because she adds a caveat, but she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. I, I don't think that's an indication that, that Martha knew what Jesus was going to do. I don't think that she knew he was going to raise her brother from the dead. She's as surprised as, as anyone else later on. She says, don't do it, Jesus. He's going to smell. Um, so maybe it's just this statement of, I don't know why you weren't here. I don't understand Jesus, but I, I still trust you. I know that you have power. I, I still trust you. Uh, Mary eventually does get up and goes to meet Jesus only after a specific invitation from Martha. When she says that if he had not been there, her brother would not have died, she offers no caveat. And Jesus doesn't engage with her in conversation as he does with Martha, but he simply asks her to take him to the tomb. And, and as he sees that scene, he weeps. Notice that Jesus approaches the grief and the, the, the same question of both sisters in, in two different ways. With Martha, he speaks to her. He speaks truth to her. 
theological, deep truth. He offers answers to some of her questions. But with Mary, what does he do? He just weeps with her. There's a time to speak and a time to be silent. And there are people who want to talk through their grief and their anger and their confusion. And there's other people that just want us to weep with them. And so we must trust the Spirit to guide us as we try to help others so that we would know when truth is required and when tears will say more than any of our, any of our words could. It's in response to the weeping of Jesus that the Jews marvel at Jesus' love for Lazarus and then they ask the same question that Martha and Mary had asked in different words, but they're, they're getting at the same thing, which is why didn't he get here in time? This man, he he healed a blind man. Surely he could have healed Lazarus. Of course he could have. I think these questions in the midst of all these clear statements of the love of Jesus get us to this third principle. Don't mistake the absence of God's power as an evidence of the absence of God's love. Don't mistake the absence of God's power as an evidence of the absence of God's love. Is there any doubt that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus? There is no doubt that he loved them. And there is also no doubt in their hearts or in ours that Jesus could have healed Lazarus. Jesus could have prevented his death. Everybody agrees on that point. But the fact that he purposely delayed his arrival and allowed Lazarus to die does not mean that he did not love Lazarus or his sisters. In fact, our other principles help us to understand why this is true. Jesus' desire for his glory and the growth of the faith of his followers caused him to delay because he loved them. And if we're looking for God's glory, then it could be that we'll see just how he is glorified through the delay of his power. Just as there is no doubt that God loved this family, we know that God loves we who are his children. In his word, we're told it, we're shown it most clearly in the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. He loves us. And yet our circumstances can make us doubt his love. In sickness, in the face of death, in chronic illness, in relational conflict, in financial difficulty, in parenting struggles, in career disappointments, in persistent sin, in addiction, in global wars, in all of the death we face each day that we cry out to God to do something about, we can begin to wonder why he doesn't step in and do something. And when he doesn't, we start to say, maybe he doesn't love me. Maybe he doesn't care about me because he's not showing me his power. Notice here, there is no questioning of his power, is there? No one doubted that Jesus could have healed Lazarus. They just don't know why he didn't. And we who know God's power, we fight to know why he doesn't. Why doesn't he deliver us? Why does he delay so long? I think Martha and Mary show us that we can ask that question. 
But we can ask that question without doubting his love. Earlier, Jesus says to his disciples, our friend Lazarus is sick. Could we maybe hear him say to his father, our name? Followed by those words, our friend is struggling. Could we hear him speak truth to us the way he does to Martha? Could we see him weep with us the way he does with Mary? Even as we struggle to know why he is doing what he's doing or not doing what we want him to do, we know that he is our friend. He speaks truth to us, he weeps with us, he loves us. And he is as frustrated by death as we are. When we read that Jesus was deeply moved and troubled in his spirit, it communicates actually as this sense of righteous anger. Why is he angry? It would seem probable that he's angry at the effects of sin in this world and the death that it brought into his good creation. Jesus feels with us our heartaches and our grief and our anger. He hates the effects of sin and death more than we ever could, which means that we should never mistake the absence of God's power as an evidence for the absence of God's love. He is for us. He grieves with us. He loves us. And this leads to our fourth principle, which is also our big idea. In the face of death, hold on to Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Resurrection is our only hope. Look at verses 38 to 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Do you see why Jesus delayed? Do you see the glory that he receives in this situation that he would not have received if he showed up four days before that? Do you see him calling people to believe in him because of this particular sign? Do you see the glory of Jesus, the resurrection and the life in a way that could not have happened if he just healed Lazarus? The power of this moment is so great and so glorious and it's so great and so glorious, why? Because Jesus delayed, because he didn't give them what they wanted. And because of that, it ignites deep faith. Why? Because it followed deep suffering. We skipped over Jesus' words to Martha as he spoke to her about her brother rising again. She looked to the future resurrection of the last day, which is certainly something that we have hopes for. But Jesus also wanted her and us to see the hope of resurrection and life right now, 
So he says to her that he himself is the resurrection and the life. He doesn't simply give resurrection and life to us. He himself is the resurrection and the life. He, doesn't, he, he is exactly who Lazarus needs because Lazarus needs someone that can raise him from the dead and Jesus is the resurrection. And for all who have died in Christ, he is the one who can raise us again on the last day. Lazarus will die again, but Jesus gives us a preview of the resurrection that will come for all his children. He shows us that whoever believes in him, even though we die, yet we shall live. Jesus is also exactly who Martha and those who are alive in Christ need. He is our life. In this world marked by death, Jesus offers resurrection life in the faith of all, face of all the dying that we experience every day. He is the one who promises that if we live and believe in him, we will never die. How? How is that possible? How is Jesus the resurrection and the life? The answer to that question comes from a really unlikely source in verses 45 to 54. Look at this as we draw things to a close. Verse 45, many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Jesus is the resurrection and the life for all who believe because he was the man who died for all the scattered people of God and who was raised up to life. Our hope in the face of death is not to hold on to our good works or some vague idea about God being good, or to the thought that everyone is basically good, our hope in the face of death is that Jesus died and rose again on our behalf. Our only hope is to hold on to him, to trust him, to rest in him, to confess our sin and the fact that we deserve death and to find our life in him. And then we continue to trust him, knowing that we are believing in a God who takes the most sinful act ever committed and turns it for the greatest good. His death is for the nation and for all nations. It's for all who will believe in him. And he willingly walked into the jaws of death so that he could bring us life. Again, we see Jesus not pointing down a difficult path, telling us to walk down it by ourselves, but rather he stands at the end of it and he says, follow me. And while that means that we must follow him into death, it also means that we follow him into resurrection. And so the question that comes to Mary, comes to Martha and comes to all of us is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And Martha believed, didn't she? What a, 
What a bold statement. We've seen so much disbelief in John's gospel. So many people not believing who Jesus is. Listen to what Martha says. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Do you think about John 20? Why did John write this gospel? So that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would find life in his name. Martha is an example of what that looks like. She realized that Jesus was and is the Messiah and the Son of God sent to save the world. But the Pharisees looked and all they could see was a threat. So they killed the author of life. And apart from God's grace and the new birth, we too will reject him. But by grace, through faith, we can come to see that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the one that, that we can hold on to in the face of death. And then if we do that, we can begin to see that, that the world exists for the glory of God so that we can begin to join in this eternal purpose of looking for and seeking for God's glory in everything. We will look at our suffering and difficulty with eyes of faith that remember that suffering is often required for God's glory and for our growth in faith. And because we long for those things, for God's glory and for our growth in faith more than we long for anything else, we trust God even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of difficulty and darkness and death. We'll walk through the pain of life as God delays and as we wonder about his absence of power, but we will never doubt his love because he's made it so clear to us through his death on the cross. And in all things, we hold on to hope. What hope? The hope of resurrection. Resurrection. That one day, as old Samwise Gamgee says, everything sad will come untrue. That the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to compare to the glory that will be revealed. That one day Jesus is going to call us by name out of the tomb and we'll never die again. And we'll live in this new heavens, this new earth where all the former things have passed away. Resurrection is here and it's coming because Jesus has resurrected and he is coming again. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, how deep your love is for us, vast beyond all measure. Lord, forgive us for doubting that love just because of the things that we go through. Thank you that you come into it, that you, you speak truth to us, you weep with us, you are angry at sin just like we are. And thank you, God, that you provide the ultimate hope because you have resurrected. Lord, thank you for the hope of resurrection. Lord, fill us with that hope this week as we just face so much death and so much heartache and disappointment that we would remember that there is a day coming that is even here now when all things will be made new. Oh, Lord, would you take your word, this such a powerful word, and would you 
drill it down into our hearts so that when we're in situations like this that we can see you, that we can long for your glory and for our growth in faith more than we want anything else. So so that we will not doubt your love even when you delay your power. We thank you for the hope of resurrection and we do say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.